Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, Kat, you can start to fade. That, of course, is Brian Wilson's great ode to solitude. We're going to do a show today. It's nominally about hermits. Although, I mean, that's a very loosely applied and poorly understood word. Uh, It's maybe more a show about solitude. Either way, we're going to do a show about something you're experiencing more of right now. Uh, than usual, and also potentially less than usual. In other words, if you're at home right now with other people, uh, maybe you're with them more than you're accustomed to being. So uh, a little of both. You may feel like a hermit and like somebody who doesn't get a chance at solitude at all. All at the same time, everything contains its own opposite. Heraclitus was right. And, you know, here in America, I also feel like we have because everything in America is performative, I think we have the most performative hermits. I mean, I think Thoreau in particular was a very gregarious, people-oriented hermit who really wanted people to know (laughs) that he was engaging in acts of solitude. And even Salinger, you know, famously a person who withdrew from society, except that everybody in Cornish, New Hampshire knew him. They all knew Jerry. Uh, They were very artful at giving people from out of town bad directions to where he lived. He wasn't really seeking solitude. He was just trying to get away from a certain kind of person. So we're going to talk about this in a much more uh, pervasive and ideally profound way with three terrific guests today. We're going to begin with Stephen Batchelor. He is a Buddhist teacher and writer. He's the author of several books, including Buddhism Without Beliefs, A Contemporary Guide to Awakening. And most recently, and most relevantly, The Art of Solitude. He's the co-founder of Bodhi College. uh, And he is joining us, I believe, from France. So first of all, Stephen Batchelor, good day or night. Well, it's actually early evenings, but I realize it's your afternoon. So good afternoon, Colin. It's it's a pleasure to be on this show. So where you are right now is not too far uh, from the home of Montaigne, uh, someone with whom you have intellectually communed 500 years removed. And, And he is one of the people who who points us towards some value of solitude. And I know as we're sitting here in the midst of the pandemic, um, you feel as though Montaigne, with his experiences with the plague, may have something to teach us as well. So give us a little tour through that. Well, you're right. I live about 40 minutes by car from the tower and the castle uh, in which Montaigne spent all those years in solitude. Although, as you were saying about... um, 
uh, Thoreau. Uh, Montaigne, likewise, was in solitude, but he was also very much involved with the world at the same time. And Montaigne has always struck me as someone who stands as a wonderful example of a person who's willing to take the risk of cutting himself off from the world at one level and having the courage to look into the uh, nature of his own mind, his emotions, his thoughts, his desires, his fears, and to uh, study that uh, rather than uh, be somewhat uh, bored or lonely or whatever it might be. He actually becomes profoundly interested in what is going on inside himself. And I think many of us today, if we're not used to the experience of being solitude, uh, the experience of solitude, we might find that one of the most unnerving aspects of it is that we're confronted with our own subjectivity, our own inwardness, as Kierkegaard called it. And we may find that we're not particularly as skilled um, at dealing with some of the stuff that comes bubbling up or sometimes comes racing up. Uh, Montaigne, when he first went into his uh, tower, uh, thought it would be kind of straightforward to just sit down, look at his books, and then everything would be hunky-dory. But in fact, he said what happened was that his, he looked at his mind and his mind was completely out of his control. He said it's, it races off like a galloping horse with no design or plan. And this led him into many years, really, of deep introspection and fascination with the workings of his own interiority. And what he has to say about solitude, I think, has a really universal relevance that is not just confined to his period in history or his particular personal experience, but I found it really does allow us to see what solitude is like. And also he gives us endless numbers of very good tips as to how to cope with it. So he's become a bit of a hero for me. Um, I also, of course, admire the fact that he didn't uh, seal himself off from the world, but he constantly kept... Uh, an awareness and uh, active involvement, in fact, in some of the political issues of his day. And as you mentioned, he had to deal with things like the plague. Uh, when the plague struck Bordeaux in 1585, uh, a small city at the time, probably population less than 50,000 or so, 14,000 people died in a six-month period, which kind of puts our coronavirus mortality rate into a different sort of perspective. Yes. Montaigne also fled. Uh, the plague surrounded his uh, castle and uh, he went off for six months in a carriage with his wife and his daughter and some servants, no doubt, and, um, you know, had to cope with solitude. He didn't, uh, sorry, he didn't have to cope with solitude, had to cope, cope with the plague. Mm -hmm. And I think the solitude he'd experienced uh, didn't, wasn't something that sealed him off from the world. It actually allowed him a sort of personal stability and clarity of mind in which he was able to respond more appropriately, uh, more immediately, uh, more decisively perhaps with the situation in which he found himself in, in this case, surrounded by plague. He was also surrounded by war. Uh, he was right in the midst of the world's turmoil. And yet the solitude comes to be understood not as a, a separating yourself off from these things, but rather uh, separating yourself off from the habits of your mind that are constantly preoccupying you, constantly sending you off on wild goose chases of fantasy and uh, paranoia and uh, so forth and so on. And um, 
in this respect, solitude becomes a means whereby to get to grips with who you are and to find a more stable and more honest way to encounter not only your own uh, inner life, but also the life that's going on all around you. Right. If if Montaigne had had the uh, awareness to bring um, a yoga mat up into his tower, he would have known that he was experiencing the monkey mind at first, <laughs> the side, instead, no, of the, instead of the galloping horse. So at the beginning of your book, you, you quote Victor Hugo saying that uh, the solitude is hell. Uh, so bumping up against that, sort of, we have Sartre in No Exit uh, saying hell is other people, which doesn't give us too many options to escape hell. Except that <laughs> Sartre, when he, when he clarifies that thought later, he says, what he really means, and it's very close to something that you just said, Stephen, what mm -hmm. he really means is that uh, it, with other people present, you can't truly know yourself. You can't confront yourself because your idea of your own self is uh, it incorporates the judgments other people have made about you and are making about you. That's the problem with other people. So presumably the first person you meet in solitude, the first presence you encounter is yourself um is that a fair statement that, that, that that's that's who you're alone with for the first time yes uh, indeed it is and um uh, of course it's not i mean solitude is not a special condition of of, of, of certain hermits and others who decide to uh, separate themselves from the world uh, solitude is the condition in which we are born and the condition in which we spend a lot of our life anyway whatever we're doing there's always a part of ourselves, even in the midst of a busy meeting, even as we're listening to this radio show, perhaps, in which you're paying attention to what's going on all around you. But there's a part of you that somehow takes a certain distance, that observes yourself observing what's going on, that is self-reflective, self-aware. And as long as there's other stuff going on around you, you can kind of manage that quite well. But when you are suddenly uh, removed from all of these inputs and stimuli, all these other people and so on, um, you become much more uh, acutely aware um, of your inner stuff, as it were, your inner life. And it's at that point that you do begin to realize that so much of who you think you are is very often uh, constituted of the voices of your parents or your teachers or other figures you admire who are kind of running a sort of a background commentary uh, that constitutes in many ways uh, what you tell yourself about yourself. And so I think what Montaigne and others have found is that actual solitude uh, provides us an opportunity to begin to tease apart uh, those voices which are really the internalized voices of others and to begin to identify those uh, that, that inner quiet voice that is really the voice of your own soul, we might say, that is uh, finding itself. Uh, Keats, in his poetry, uh, talks of uh, the experience of solitude as being dialogical. It's, 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 your, it's you talking to yourself, you uh, thinking your thoughts. It's not just a one-dimensional state at all. It always consists of a certain kind of voice. Uh, and that voice you begin over time to refine. And as a writer uh, and as an artist, perhaps, I think we find that it's in solitude that we begin to discover our own voice, our own way of seeing the world that's less and less 
inflected by the opinions and the views of our society uh, and of others who have been a great influence on us. It really is amazing how much, uh, how often, how consistently among creative people, this just keeps coming up. You write uh, a lot about painters, uh, about uh, Vermeer uh, and about Agnes Martin. Uh, but yes, it's in Keats. Obviously, it's in Wordsworth, of whom you appear to be very fond of it. The world is too much with us. Um, there is this kind of notion that if you are going to get to anything true, whether it's an apprehension of true beauty or, or an apprehension of yourself or something, you are somehow or other going to have to approach the state that you're talking about right now, Stephen, right? This notion of somehow or other cutting off some of those other ties and silencing some of those other voices. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I think this has been what uh, monasteries and other such uh, institutions have served in the past. It's an opportunity to have a place, a safe place, where you can retreat where you can uh, enter into a more contemplative dialogue with who you are. And again, I think it's important not to restrict this to monks and hermits and so forth, for which it is perhaps best known, but also to recognize that uh, many of our greatest philosophers, uh, more recent, recently one would think perhaps of Nietzsche, uh, of Kierkegaard, of Heidegger, all of whom, and Wittgenstein, all of whom uh, spent deliberate periods of time, very much by themselves and on, on, and on, and on their own. Um, but also uh, artists. I, I feel that the artist in his or her studio is in a very, very solitary uh, space. Um, my brother's an artist working in London. He's not particularly interested in meditation and things like that. But he very much resonates with the uh, discourse on solitude, that he finds himself um, struggling with his work. Um, in an environment where he's entirely alone, and yet that aloneness allows him to enter into a much deeper and richer dialogue with uh, his paintings and with his sculptures that he's uh, refining and creating uh, there in the world. And Agnes Martin talks of how she, uh, she, uh, she paints with her back to the world. In other words, there's something about the solitude of the artist's studio, of the writer's uh, retreat, of the monk's uh, cell, uh, that enables another kind of discourse to begin to emerge. You know, you've done so much more in the way of this than, than I have. Uh, but one of my kind of minor experiences of this happened, oddly enough, about 200 kilometers west of where you are right now. I went on a solo bicycle trip uh, that started up around Sarlat and Suyak and then south and ended in Cahor. Um, and I was alone. And I mean, I stopped at inns, you know, to stay for the night, but my French is bad. Um, and I, I just was increasingly aware that I was alone. I was alone out on the road. Uh, and I was frequently lonely, which I had not expected to be. But at the end of it all, I turned in my bicycle that I'd rented from this tour company in Cahor. And, and as you probably know, there's a kind of famous bridge in Cahor, the Pont de Valentre. And I walked out on it and I started to cry, like really cry about, and it was about the beauty that I'd experienced. And all just suddenly these days and days and days 
of being in this incredible countryside with these incredible natural splendors just made me weep in a way that I don't think I ever had before. And I think it did have something to do with the solitude part, the aloneness part, the fact that there wasn't anybody else mediating or moderating my experience of the world. And so, you know, when I read what you write about the vis these visual artists, I think probably if you want to see beauty and color and, and light, you, you'd, you'd best try to do it without a lot of outside interference. I think that's absolutely right. And it's also uh, something reported by people who go on meditation retreats and they spend, let's say, a week in silent meditation. And very often after a couple of days when the mind begins to sort of quieten down, you're not talking to people, so there's no input, all that sort of dies down too. And often it's rather surprising that suddenly the world appears to you more radiant, the colors appear more bright, the sounds appear more sharp and distinct, and very often people do feel these strong aesthetic experiences that brings them to the edge of tears. There's something profoundly moving about letting the mind quieten down, let, letting go of all of the inputs from our devices and our media and our friends and our family. And we begin to realize that all of that noise um, is actually something that serves as a kind of a, an anesthetic. It actually dulls the senses. And once that begins to die down, no doubt as it did for you as you bicycle through uh, that part of France, um, is exactly that. But when the mind begins to quieten down, when things begin to still, it's not just a negative experience of, 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 of having somehow lost something, chatter, but in the loss of that chatter, there is allowed the capacity to, for the senses to be uh, profoundly enriched and sharpened. Of course, there is tumult of other things too. As you mentioned, loneliness is the shadow side of solitude, which can sometimes be very daunting, something we want to really get away from as soon as possible. But if we can go through those dark moments of the soul, as it were, and, and let that loneliness just be part of the experience, just another dimension of our humanity, when things begin to settle down, when you find you can actually embrace being alone and accept being alone, an enormous amount of... Uh, uh, of, of, of rich, aesthetic, emotional, and uh, I would say kind of a wisdom too, uh, begins to become more and more in evidence uh, as you go through the days. Um, I just realized, by the way, I was 200 kilometers east of where you are. If I were to yeah, east, kilometers. that's right. West would have been out in the Atlantic Ocean. I was going to say I'd be in the ocean. All right. So, um, what are the things that you deal with? We should say that you were uh, 10 years uh, a monk y yourself. And yeah. one of the things that struck me about one of your first uh, experiments with this, is, which involved hiking up to a kind of a rem somewhat remote ledge, I guess, in, uh, near Dharamsala. Uh, and you, one of the things you describe immediately is this notion that no one really knew where you were, if you were attacked by a bear, if you broke your leg, if you were bitten by a cobra, there would be no way of signaling anyone. By the way, at that point, you lost me. You lost me at Bitten by Cobra. I'm, I'm not going to do this uh, thing that you did. But, but I think one of the things you're touching at there also is one of the first things 
that we feel, one of our reactions to solitude is fear. We feel an enhanced sense of our own vulnerability that maybe is otherwise dulled once again by this noise around us. Maybe you can say a little bit about that fear and that vulnerability. I think those kinds of levels of fear and vulnerability um, have very much to do with the fact that we're allowing ourselves to be in an extraordinarily raw and uh, immediate encounter with our uh, our condition as human beings, namely uh, that we are born and we're going to die. And this is such a, a profound and unavoidable reality that um, it sometimes takes an extreme act like going off and climbing up into the Himalayas uh, to actually allow ourselves to feel what that's like. And um, I think that for many people, maybe human society in general, we could say, it spends much of its time running away from these things in a state of, of existential flight. Um, and this uh, is a way perhaps of coping with our existential condition, but it also is a way of rendering it somehow more superficial, uh, somehow dishonest in a way. And solitude uh, forces upon us um, a degree of uh, self-acceptance, a degree of honesty, a degree of being forced in a way to say, yes, this is what I am. I am a fragile, vulnerable creature uh, that, uh, whose life depends on the, sing on the beating of a muscle in my chest. And this can be very scary. But I think this is where the contemplative traditions um, come into their own, really, because by learning how to, to meditate, for example, you learn how to somehow get a better handle and control over your errant thoughts and your crazy emotions. And after time, it begins to settle. And in that settling, we find ourselves able to embrace what otherwise is, is terrifying and scary. And I think there's also no bottom to this. I think that uh, at some level, this kind of existential uh, fear um, uh, is, 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 is without uh, any kind of end. Uh, I feel that um, no matter how many years you've spent in a monastery, no matter how many retreats you've done, uh, there's something sublime in the sense of overwhelming in our humanity that uh, can constantly be enriched and deepened with further uh, reflections, further uh, experiences of solitude, such that we find that although um, it can be frightening, it, at the same time, it can be profoundly enriching. So, you know, we've talked um, about solitude and meditation. There are other dimensions to your book, The Art of Solitude. And before we run out of time, which we appear to be doing, um, uh -huh. I'd like to just ask you about ways in which you enhanced, perhaps, the experience of solitude with such substances as peyote and something else that I don't even know how to pronounce. Uh, but uh, maybe talk a little bit about those mind-altering substances and, and what role they played. Um, when I turned 60, which is about the time the project of the book Art of Solitude began, I wanted to revisit some very formative experiences I'd had as a a young man, and that was the taking psychedelics at the end of the 1960s, which in many ways was what prompted me, or opened my mind, let's say, 
to exploring non-Western philosophies, in particular Buddhism. And that's what led me, I think, in some ways to becoming a monk. And at the age of 60, I decided I wanted to return and revisit some of those formative experiences. I'd spent a long time without touching any of those things. But I wanted to do it also in a more religious setting. And so I went to Mexico. I participated in a, a medicine ceremony with a shaman. And subsequently, I did two ceremonies in Europe with uh, ayahuasca, which is a, a plant medicine that is used in the Amazonian areas of South America. And I found that what these um, substances are able to uh, invoke, uh, and again, we mustn't take this out of context, uh, just as important as the setting of the ceremony, uh, the group of people with whom you do it, the guidance of the shaman, uh, and certain other religious rituals and so on that accompany this, that the, these uh, medicines, which I prefer to think of them as medicines rather than drugs, uh, these medicines, I think, have the capacity to temporarily uh, arrest certain deep habits of mind. And if one has already some kind of contemplative practice, I think these experiences can be used to take a very deep and a very uh, radical look at who you are, at where your life is at, of what your life has been, um, in many ways, like so many of these kinds of experiences, it's very difficult to put it into words. But I found in my own case, uh, undergoing these uh, experiences uh, very much uh, served both to confirm my life in so far as I've lived it uh, up to now. Uh, and also, curiously, they had an effect somehow that I can only describe as a sort of cleansing or purification it's as though something was purged and with ayahuasca in particular uh, part of the experience for many people is that there is literally a purging there's a lot of a vol mm. vol vomiting and so on which is very unpleasant i mean these are certainly not party drugs uh, they're very challenging and many people who involved in these kinds of practices think of them as as, as environments for work you're working on yourself you're working on your life the medicine is really challenging you to open your eyes and to take stock of who you are as a human being. And I found in the course of these different ceremonies that they had served very much to free me from certain uh, quite deep-seated attachments, uh, one of which was to alcohol. Um, I didn't drink a huge amount, but as you've already noted, I live in Bordeaux. Mm. Uh, the stuff comes out of the taps almost. And you know, I had a habit of drinking wine on a daily basis. After the first of the ayahuasca experiences, I, my body knew that I was finished with wine and beer and all of those things. And I've not touched a drop since. And that was nearly four years ago now. So that's one very concrete consequence of uh, these experiences. The other was that um, I also found that I had to look very uh, honestly at my relationship with Buddhism the religion that I had, in a sense, converted to when I was 19 or 20 years old, and in which I think I had also become somehow attached and stuck and dependent on that. And um, the ceremonies with these medicines uh, likewise revealed to me the extent to which I'd become somewhat stuck and somewhat caught up in and dependent on these religious uh, beliefs and doctrines that I was so interested in. And I feel that that shifted to, that was somehow released, that was somehow um, 
purged, I mm. think is the word to use. So um, this too, likewise, was clearly something deeply solitary, even though I was actually physically with other people. We weren't talking, and it was something that brings you deeply into yourself. And I feel that that likewise added a very crucial and uh, illuminating dimension of solitude that um, I feel constitutes the whole that I seek to portray in this book, which involves philosophy, meditation, uh, plant medicines, and art are probably the four main themes of the book. And, and we should probably stop to... stop there, other than to say that that book is The Art of Solitude. It would be a great read. It was been a, it's been a great read for me. It's published by Yale University Press. A great read for me during this time of not entirely volitional uh, solitude. Uh, and uh, it would be a great read for the rest of you as well. Although, don't try everything that Stephen tries, at least not right now, would be my advice. Stephen Batchelor has been our guest Buddhist teacher and writer, uh, author of many books, including most recently The Art of Solitude. Thank you for your time uh, and uh, do whatever you do in France when you don't drink wine uh, and do it with joy. Thank you for being with me. Thank you, Colin. It's been great. And we'll take a little break. We're going to talk some more about this. I want to talk to somebody about technology and all this, you know, solitude with Zoom and Slack and all these other things dinging on my phone. All right, we're back. We're talking about hermits and various other words that, that touch upon that same idea. Joining us now is Dr. Lucinda Mosher, uh, Faculty Associated Interfaith Studies uh, at the Hartford Seminary. Lucinda Mosher, welcome to our conversation. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Yes, oh, uh, good. Yeah. I, I, that's just a little slash line through my microphone symbol on my phone here. <laughs> uh, well, I'm delighted to be with you today to talk about the hermit tradition. So it seems to be a pretty consistent thing throughout theologies. I mean, across theologies. I mean, I think we've gotten kind of a taste from Stephen Batchelor about how it uh, plays within something like Buddhism. Uh, in Hasidism, we have the Baal Shem Tov going up to the yes. Carpathian Mountains to meditate. It, and obviously, in the Christian tradition, has a lot of that hermetic idea too. So, yeah, so what's going the, on there? The Hin, what, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, yeah. Hin, the Hindu and Jain traditions also. The, the notion of, of a renunciate or uh, someone who sets themselves aside. Yes, we. See see that in pretty much every religious tradition. I'm uh, a Christian, an Anglican, and so I, I have most knowledge about the hermit tradition in, in the Christian tr uh, side of things. But I do have, as a, a, an instructor in interreligious studies, uh, some depth of understanding in the others as well. But let's talk about the Christians. Uh, we can trace the hermit tradition back to about the third century. The word comes from uh, a Greek word that means of the desert. And, and we get that label for it because some of the early uh, people in this, uh, who, who behaved in this way were in the desert in what is now Egypt. So, so that uh, 
explains the name. Another name for it is anchorite, which comes from the Greek for withdrawing. So someone who withdraws would be an anchorite. And, and what we see with all of these folks is, yes, they are seeking solitude, focus, uh, seclusion uh, in order to focus more closely on God, but they always have an availability to the wider community. So yes, they've set themselves apart, but they are uh, known to be a source of wisdom to others and they are available. So it, it seems contradictory, but it, it really is not. I mean, maybe just uh, give us a little snapshot of uh, of one of these people. Amas Sarah, am I saying that correct? Yeah, Amas Sarah. Amas Sarah, I, I love her. She was uh, in the fifth uh, century in Egypt. Uh, she dispensed wisdom quite consistently for about 60 years as, as a hermit in uh, a, a somewhere, I'm not exactly certain where, but she was near a river, so that was probably a source of sustenance for her. And her aphorisms, her, her sayings of wisdom, were collected in a, a, a book known as The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, but she's a desert mother. And, and she's one of, of a number that we know of that that were uh, these these wise women uh, and men who had something to say, and there's what they said was pithy enough that people would remember it and write it down. And then if we dial farther, um, one of the more fascinating ones came a little before her. He was in uh, Syria. Simon, Simeon the Stylite is representative of a tradition of, of these folks who in, in the Syrian context would literally live on a pillar. They would live sort of in a uh, treehouse-like thing, only it's, uh, as I envision it, in the in the middle of an, of an area, just a platform up in the air, which gets them out of the mainstream, but they are available. And people come to where they are and call up to them, maybe raise up food to them uh, in a basket or something. And again, he's there to dispense wisdom. Uh, farther, much more uh, recent, in, comparatively, uh, in the 1300s, 1400s, we have Julian of Norwich, who's... Uh, is called an anchorite rather than a hermit. But again, the words are have similar meanings. And, and she, um, she lived through the bubonic plague. I think she's particularly relevant to our current situation because she knew devastating illness as a child. Uh, the bubonic plague went through Norwich, England, uh, and she survived that. Later on in her 30s, she had some sort of a devastating illness with a tremendously high fever. And in this illness saw many visions of Jesus in his passion. So when she recovered from this illness um, some days later, she wrote down her visions. And this became the first book um, that uh, the first, the first book by a, a woman surviving in, uh, that we have it, that was written in English. In English. So uh, an interesting contribution to the literature. Then later on, about 20 years later, she rewrote the book, this time much more expanded, where she really philosophizes. And she really uh, asserts herself as a, an important theologian. Her, her way of thinking about the, the human-divine relationship uh, is strikingly beautiful. She talks about Jesus uh, and, and God the Father in motherly terms. Uh, she speaks about um, the, the, the certainty of God's presence. 
So again, she's someone whose writings I will be assigning to my students when I teach a course on uh, uh, interreligious uh, leadership in uh, times of crisis that's coming up in mm -hmm. next month at Hartford. That should uh, be a very popular course, given... I, I, we, we are hoping so, because we think it, it really is needed. Uh, but she, her writings uh, are really important to read in, in what I would call our own emergent situation, our own really difficult time. So uh, so these, these folks, they lived in... Uh, let me tell you a bit more about Julian. She... Uh, Sometime after that, that that serious illness in her 30s, she asked to become an anchorite. They literally performed a funeral for her, and she was uh, part of a procession into a cell that had been built on the side of the church in the center of the town, and they walled her in there. She had a window that she could look into the church onto the altar and watch the Eucharist, and she could look at another window out into the outside world where people could come to her and ask for her counsel. And she lived in this one-room cell, we're told, with her cat for the rest of her life. But again, she's, she's, uh, it's a life of solitude, of centering, but she's available. And, and her wisdom was sought far and wide. People came to Norwich to meet with her. And we know this because of some of the other writings uh, that that mentioned this, so um, so a really interesting uh, way of being uh, a spiritual leader in a difficult situation. Uh, I find her fascinating. All right, we're going to have to pause there. Uh, although uh, it would be fascinating, maybe you can come back on another occasion, Lucinda. Mosher. Love I to. It, I think it would be fascinating also to talk to some of the people who we're actually having a debate in this. Uh, state of Connecticut right now about whether solitary confinement should ever be used on anybody, uh, mm. particularly the way we do it these days. And obviously, one of your other areas of thought and expertise is people who have been forced into isolation as a result of their imprisonment and that what that yeah, does. And, and there's a difference between solitude and forced isolation. So yes. that I'd love to come back and talk yes. about that. That, that'll have to be a topic for another day. Uh, we've got one Very more good. segment to go here, and we are uh, obeying a higher power. That would be senior producer <laughs> Betsy Kaplan. So we're going to move along here, and we're com we'll come back with more of our conversations about hermits. Solitude stands by the window She turns her head as I walk in the room I can see by her eyes she's been waiting Standing on the slant of a late afternoon Time for some quick thank yous and credits. Uh, first of all, Cat Pastor is, as usual, in the studio making everything hum in a good way uh, and is the person who makes it possible for the rest of us to work remotely our gratitude knows no bounds. Our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, is the person who put this show together. Uh, and uh, I, there's a rumor that Katie Tularski, who's one of the big bosses, is experiencing a birthday today. If that's true, happy birthday, Katie Tularski. And thanks to all the other people who line up behind us and make everything
something possible. Tomorrow, we're going to do a show about groceries. You know, you, you, do you find you're kind of obsessing about groceries right now and how to shop for them and what to get? And it, suddenly, it, it's not a casual thing. You're not just going to duck in somewhere and buy three or four things. It's a big deal. So we're going to talk very methodically and comprehensively uh, about buying groceries tomorrow. Um, believe me, there's a lot, a lot to be said about that. Uh, we are going to continue now with our conversation about hermits. Joining us now uh, is Karen Carper-Fredette, uh, a cloistered nun for 30 years and has lived as a hermit for six years in a cabin in West Virginia, the author of several books, including Consider the Ravens on Contemporary Hermit Life. She and her husband, Paul, co-author a quarterly newsletter for hermits called Raven's Bread. Uh, welcome to this conversation, Karen. Well, thank you. You can hear me. I can hear. We can hear you. I mean, oh, in, in fact, let's let's start there, okay? Because you know, everybody who's been on this show today, uh, three people with a lot of experience with this notion of solitude and the potential for spiritual gain through solitude. Everybody who's done this today has been on by Zoom, <laughs> and and, and <laughs> yes. I, I've I've got things beeping at me and clicking me at me all day long in, in a way that you know a third century stylite wouldn't have had to worry about very much. Um, so obviously, you use technology to get the word out, but what's your real relationship as someone who does consciously embrace solitude what's your relationship with modern technology like well i think modern technology if properly used always has a place in um in the life of a solitary or hermit the um one of the important things i want to emphasize when people hear the word hermit they almost unconsciously think of recluse. Mm -hmm. And a recluse and a hermit are not necessarily identified together. A recluse is more often a person who really does not like people and chooses not to be in connection with them in any way. A hermit throughout the centuries, as we've already heard, um, is available to people in part for um, spiritual counsel. The um, hermits would, when the villagers needed to bring in the harvest and every hand was needed, the um, hermits would come out and help and then would be given a portion. <clears throat> so um, I don't see any problem with using modern devices to get the word out that there is life as a hermit that can be very, <clears throat> excuse me, very meaningful. So, you know, yeah. One of the things that um, Lucinda was talking about is that notion of that you just talked about, too, about that notion. The hermit is often seeking something. The hermit is often seeking uh, wisdom or or an, a, a purer encounter with self or a purer encounter with God. But one of the things that gets reported over and over again by people who, who have that experience is often that they they arrive more at questions than answers. Uh, and there's, a, to me, a kind of an interesting paradox between that notion of people seeking out the hermit, 
uh, for wisdom, you know, that, that Julian of Norwich would be lying in her sickbed dispensing wisdom and answering questions. Is it necessarily the case that hermits are going to have pearls of wisdom that they can drop in eager hands? Or are hermits often in purer contact with uncertainty and questions that kind of live and breathe on their own? Well, I, I can speak from my own experience that um, when once I began living hermit life alone in this cabin in West Virginia, after 30 years enclosed in a monastery, I was overwhelmed with questions. I didn't know how to deal with the real world. And gradually the experience of it, you know, I learned because I had to learn. I had, um, and I was the only one around to teach myself other than the Spirit of God, which had led me to find a new lifestyle at that point. Um, one vivid moment, I was stacking the wood for the wood stove, and I turned and I saw a copperhead. Um, draped over the wood. I was about to move. And my first thought was, well, I'll leave and it will leave and then I can come back. But I didn't know where it would go. And there was no one to deal with this but myself and, and the Spirit of God. So I did something I'm not entirely proud of but seemed necessary at the time. I got my double-headed axe and killed the herm, killed the copperhead. But what it taught me was that when you have no one to lean on but yourself, you will find the strength. And I think many of our people today who are finding themselves caught up in um, a kind of solitude or isolation that they're totally feel they're unprepared for there are things that you can do that will help yourself um, by this time we've all found out pretty much what is required of us and in order to begin to make days that might be dull and uninteresting meaningful days, we need to, first of all, establish a kind of daily schedule, a schedule that um, gives you many goals. They can be spiritual goals, or they can be relaxing times when you pull out books that you intended to read in the last 10 years. <laughs> um, and by, <clears throat> excuse me, and by giving these, giving yourself a little framework, you begin to learn to cooperate with the gift of solitude. I don't like using the word isolation. I think solitude is a word that includes being caught up with others in many ways. As a hermit, over a period of time, 
you become more aware of the energies in the world around you. When we were first taught, just told me the last few weeks, that we all had to stay in shelter in place, stay at home. I was aware, and I've talked this over with others, of the fear and the doubt and the worry that were assaulting, literally it seemed, every person on our globe. And as a person who's aware of these kind of things, you immediately reach out for some spiritual stability. And you find that in prayer. And prayer doesn't have to be on your knees in front of a burning candle with folded hands. It's the gift of listening to what is happening in our world and bringing it to God who is in a very special way within you, just as the divine spirit is in everybody else. And there is a connection. I mean, I am not going to personally meet ill people in China. Uh, In fact, the county that we live in, in the mountains of Western North Carolina, has yet to have its first case of um, diagnosed. That's reassuring to hear. Unfortunately, because we move fast in radio, we have to stop there. Karen Carper-Fredette, it's been so great to talk to you. A cloistered nun for 30 years, lived as a hermit for six years, the author of books including Consider the Ravens on Contemporary Hermit Life. She and her husband uh, co-author a quarterly newsletter for hermits called Raven's Bread. Uh, One thing that I would tell the rest of you is if you would be a hermit, first you must conquer your FOMO. FOMO, of course, is fear of missing out. You can't have that and be a hermit. You're not missing out on anything right now anyway. There's a pandemic. We're quarantined. All right, here we go. We're going to say goodbye, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow with groceries.